Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. So Jesus is not only our Passover lamb, he is our great high priest. He is both the sacrifice for the sins of the world and the one who presented that offering before the altar of God. He shed his blood in the earth and then sprinkled it on the altar of heaven. He not only died as our substitute, but he now lives as our representative. In the earth, he was the Father's voice to us. And now in heaven, he is our voice to the Father. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So Jesus is the mediator. A mediator bridges the gap. He stands in the middle. He lays his hands on both sides. He must be acceptable to one as well as the other. So in his life, in the days of his flesh, Jesus met all of the righteous requirements of God the Father. He lived a perfect life, a sinless life. There was no fault found in him, and he passed every test. However, Jesus also fully experienced the hardships of humanity. He did not live a life of privilege, an elite, looking down on the world from his ivory tower. He walked where we walk. He lived as a common man. He labored with his hands. He was no stranger to suffering. He felt the sting of betrayal. And he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He completely identified with humanity, even to the point of being baptized in the River Jordan by John, who refused to baptize him. But Jesus said, allow it to be so that we may fulfill all righteousness. Can you imagine, you know, Jesus responding to the altar call? <laughs> he did that to identify completely with humanity, yet he operated in all the authority and the dignity of the Son of the Most High. Are you listening to me today? Now, 
When I was younger, which was just recently, when I was younger, my father wanted me to work in the family business with the hopes that eventually I would take it over and run it. But he started me at the bottom rung of the ladder. Hmm. You know, uh, not like in some position of uh, management or executive uh, uh, job, but way at the bottom. And he, and he wanted me to work in every department, which I did except one. And um, other employees, some, some of them, were startled to see me working alongside them. What are you doing here? You know, you're the, you're the boss's son. So others at first did not believe that I really was the son of the owner of the business. And I thought, huh? Others had to tell them, no, he really is. But then again, others said to me, your, your dad must be very smart. He wants you to know every part of his business. And he also wants you to know how it is for us here, like at, at the bottom, so to speak. Not to be derogatory, but at the bottom. In fact, I even had some of these, I was like in my 20s, and some of these men are like in their 50s and 60s, you know. And some of them said to me, you know, when, when you get to run this business, I want you to remember how hard my job is, you know. I want you to remember how difficult it is to work back here. Because sometimes people in the head office, you know, they forget about us, you see. Hmm? Well, when you've been through a difficult time, you have a heart for others who have experienced the same thing. So Jesus became like us in every respect. In other words, not only was he clothed with humanity, he lived the human life so that he could relate to us in every way. You know, if you've been through a painful um, a divorce, then you have sympathy for others who may be going through the same thing. If you've had a loved one, you know, maybe a child or, or a sibling who passed away, when you hear of others going through a similar uh, a difficulty, uh, a tragedy, it, it, it touches a chord in your heart, you see. You can relate to them. Are you listening to me? Do you know that if, if you have suffered with a certain kind of uh, illness, affliction, and then God has healed you, I've often seen that there's a special grace on your life to minister that same area of healing to others. My own pastor in uh, America, for, for some time, he had a severe back pain. You know, terrible back pain. And back pain can be some of the most uh, painful, you know, type of uh, problems you can have. And God healed him. But not only that, he had a special anointing to minister to others who had back pain. I think part of it is he could relate to people who were going through that. Are you listening to me? So Jesus can sympathize. The book of Hebrews tells us he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's easily touched with the feelings of our infirmities. So he's not only righteous, he's merciful. And the Bible says, as our high priest, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Why? Because wherever you've been, he's been there too. Except... He didn't fail the test. He passed it. But he knows what it's like. 
See, sometimes we have the idea that, well, you know, God doesn't really know how I feel. He, he hasn't experienced what I've experienced. You, know, you don't know what it's like to maybe uh, be raised uh, by, a, by, by only a mother. You, know, you don't know what it's like to, to be poor and have to work really hard, have to scrape hard to make a living. You don't know what it's like to be criticized by others, to be felt like an outcast. You don't know what it's like to be hated by the people that should love you. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to correct you. He knows exactly what all of those things is like. You ever wonder why on the cross he said to John concerning Mary, you know, to his disciples, said, you know, son, behold your mother. And he said to Mary, mother, behold your son. And from that moment on, you know, John took care of his mother. Why? Because Joseph had died. Joseph must have died some time ago because they never mentioned Joseph, you know, in Jesus' public ministry. He was never there in any of the meetings. He, he died. He was probably older. He died. So he, he knew what it was like to grow up with only a mother. He knew what it was like. The Bible says even his own brothers did not believe in him and criticized him. He knows. He came unto his own, John says, and his own did not receive him. Anywhere you've been, he's been there too. Can I get an amen, a better amen than that? Hallelujah. And then the Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6, in the Passion Translation... But now Jesus, the Messiah, has accepted a priestly ministry which far surpasses theirs. He has accepted a priestly ministry which far surpasses theirs. So just as the New Testament supersedes the Old it's better than the old, and it replaces the old. So likewise, Jesus' heavenly ministry is better and replaces the Levitical priesthood. The point of all this is he is our high priest. That's what he's doing now. He is our high priest. The priests of the Old Testament served as long as they lived. So they didn't serve for like a couple of years or, you know, uh, you know uh, a term. They served as long as they lived. But they could not continue to serve because they died. But Jesus is a priest forever. And Hebrews 7.16 says that he serves in this ministry by the power of an indestructible life. And because of this, he's able to save completely those who come to God by him. Hallelujah. The priests of the Old Testament offered up sacrifices. Sacrifices that were imperfect and ineffective and which could never take away sins. Hebrews 10.11 says that. But Jesus, after he had offered a single sacrifice once and for all, and the book of Hebrews often emphasizes that he did this once and for all time, once and for everyone. After he had offered one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the Father's right hand. You know, um, I'm in the process of building a house, my own house. 
And uh, so from time to time, you know, I, I walk around just to see how the progress is going. And uh, I don't mean this to be critical or anything, but even this afternoon as I walked outside, I saw some of the workers just sitting around. And I know they're not finished with their work. So I'm like a little bit concerned. Why are they just sitting there? Why did Jesus sit down? Because the work was completed. He's not just resting his laurels or let me just take a little break here. I'm on, I'm on, I'm on a coffee break right now, 2,000-year coffee break. No, no. He finished the work. It's done. Hallelujah. Amen. Now, the sacrifices the priests offered under the old covenant made men ceremonially clean, clean on the outside. God accepted them, but those sacrifices could never purify their consciences or quiet their troubled souls. If those sacrifices given under the law, if those sacrifices could remove sin from the heart, then the people who offered them would no longer have any consciousness of their sins, but they were continually reminded of their sins every year. The word conscious means aware. How many of you are conscious right now? I'm not sure about some of you, right? If you're conscious, you are aware of your surroundings. You know what's going on. You're, you're wide awake, right? So earlier in this message tonight, I heard what sounded like someone riding a, a motorbike out uh, maybe on the street, maybe in front of the church, and I could hear the loud uh, noise from, from his motorcycle. If, if there was someone uh, hammering a nail into the wall in the foyer, I would be conscious of that. I, you and I might be aware of that. Even without seeing that person, we, we could hear it. We would be conscious of that person's presence, you see. And it would be distracting, maybe for me or for you. Though I'm trying to concentrate, there's this, this, this noise going on that's dividing my attention, make, spoils uh, the service for me or makes it difficult for me, right? Hmm? But if the ushers chase that person away, and they would do that, if the ushers chase that person away, then he's removed from the scene, I would no longer be conscious of his presence. The blood of Jesus does not cover our sins. It removes sin from our heart. It's not there anymore so that we're no longer distracted by our sins. You see, religion... All the rituals and the ceremonies that anyone could participate in, religion can never cleanse our hearts, can never quiet that voice of self-condemnation. So regardless of how many you know, services and practices and traditions and, and, and even elaborate you know, um, religious uh, activities one's involved with, his heart still remains troubled. He's conscious. He's distracted by his own sinfulness. But the blood of Jesus removes, it purges our hearts. Hallelujah. Amen. Now, the priests of the old covenant were themselves sinful men. This is sort of interesting to me. Perhaps you can see something here as well. You don't have to turn there, of course, but in the book of Leviticus, which is talking about the Levitical priesthood, the Le tribe of Levi, talks about priesthood. In chapters 8 and 9, 
God instructed Moses to call Aaron, that's his brother, and Aaron's sons to come to the entrance of the tent of meeting. We would call it the tabernacle of Moses. And then the people were also present. And Moses bathed Aaron and his sons in public. I don't know exactly how they did that, but he bathed them in public. And then he clothed them with the priestly garments, which were quite decorative and, uh, you know, uh, very um, interesting, intricate, you know. And then Moses sprinkled the holy anointing oil on the tabernacle and the utensils, the, the things that were used in the tabernacle. He sprinkled them with holy anointing oil. And a bull and a ram was offered. And Moses took blood and he dabbed it on the right earlobe, right thumb, and the right big toe. That's rather different, isn't it? Hmm? Then Aaron and his sons, they ate that offering. They ate the meat of that offering in the courtyard of the tabernacle in the sight of the people for seven days. In fact, they were not permitted to leave the compound, the area inside, you know, the border of the tabernacle. They were not permitted to leave that area for seven days and seven nights. And the people saw them there. Hmm. See, it's quite an elaborate ordination service. They didn't just fill out a form, you know, and then come to the meeting and we just gave them a certificate. They, they went through quite a thing. It's really more like a coronation. Then Aaron and his sons offered a calf and a ram. And the people also offered a goat, a calf, and a lamb. And Aaron lifted his hands. When he lifted his hands to bless the people, the Bible says the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle. In the presence of all the people, the glory of God showed up. And then fire from heaven fell. The fire of the Lord came and consumed their offering. And when the people saw this, they shouted. I bet you'd shout too, honey. <laughs> they shouted praise to God. And they fell on their faces before the Lord and began to worship God. See? So what I'm saying is, this was quite an amazing thing. This was, this was not some, some little a little service, you know, it was some little, little minor thing. This is a big deal. They're being installed as the priests of God. So that's Leviticus chapters eight and nine, you know, and then you turn the page and in chapter 10, it says two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were there, who were part of this, this elaborate ceremony the Bible says they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. This is something, they went into the tabernacle and they, they had their censers, which were like a, kind of like a, a pot on a, on a chain. And they put things in there that God didn't tell them to do. And, and it wasn't like an honest mistake. 
It was deliberate. They knew because God gave very detailed instructions to them through Numbers, Leviticus, you know, Exodus 2. So they knew this was a flagrant act on their part. And the fire of God fell again. The same fire that earlier consumed their sacrifices now consumed them. And then in verse 8, that's still Leviticus chapter 10. In verse 8, Moses said to Aaron, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. Maybe that would be a good verse for some people to memorize this Christmas season as well. I don't know. Drink no wine or strong. Some of you are real silent. You look guilty. Drink no wine or strong drink. You or your sons with you when you go to Spirit of Faith Church, lest you die. So the implication is that Nadab and Abihu were drunk. But that's why this happened. They were drunk. So this is my point. Immediately after this solemn ceremony, quite extensive, seven days and all that, and even glorious, the presence of God, the fire of God, immediately they did this. See, a lot of people think like people in the world think if, if they could just see a miracle, you know, then that, that, you know, it would just change their whole, their whole heart would be changed. They'd live right. If they could just see more evidence of God, then I'm telling you, they would, they would fl- straighten up and fly right. That's a lie. The Israelites proved that's not true. You're lying to yourself. Are you listening to me? <laughs> see, even after all of this, they basically threw everything God said in the, in the wastebasket. And they treated the high and holy office God gave them like a joke. And you can see that God didn't think it was as funny as they thought. Hmm? But Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry. Hallelujah. And Jesus is better in every way. And what he has done for us makes our life better. And Jesus did not become a priest according to the law. Because in the Old Testament, Moses said nothing about those from the tribe of Judah becoming priests. But in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5 and 6, it says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, meaning another scripture verse from the book of Psalms, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So consider how Jesus became a priest. Jesus, when he went to the cross, was stripped of his clothing. And they gave him vinegar to eat. And the people did not bow down and worship him. Those who observed, those who watched this, they mocked him and derided him. 
And as he breathed out his last, his spirit, the Bible tells me, his spirit first descended into the lower regions of the earth. He descended into fire. But God raised him from the dead. And if you go to the first chapter of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, whom I personally am convinced is Paul, but it doesn't really matter, the writer of Hebrews tells us exactly what happened in heaven when God raised Jesus from the dead. He says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's what the Father said to Jesus. Not in Bethlehem in the manger, but when he raised Christ from the dead and when he ascended up into heaven. Hallelujah. Then he said to him in verse 8, this is still Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, but of the Son, he says, this is the Father, this is God the Father speaking, he said, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Notice that God the Father refers to the Son as God. Your throne, he says to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. You see, this was Jesus' coronation. This is when he was exalted, when he was glorified. He's no longer the humble Galilean. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. When John was on the Isle of Patmos, he had a vision of Jesus, but he didn't see him as God's humble servant. He saw him as the head of the church, and he was glorious. His, his, his feet were even like glowing, like, like burning brass. His face was like lightning. You know, when he spoke words, it was like, like thunder, you know, like, like the sound of many trumpets. You know, he, he saw him in all his glory. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And then at that time, in heaven itself, the Father made this pronouncement. Evidently, in the presence of all the host of heaven, because this is what the writer of Hebrew tells us, he said to him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Woo. That's his ministry today. That's who he is now. Most Christians know much about Jesus' earthly ministry. His earthly ministry lasted three and a half years. His heavenly ministry at the Father's right hand has lasted for the past 2,000 years. And Jesus' heavenly ministry is just as important as his earthly ministry. If he did not have that heavenly ministry, his earthly ministry would not help you and me today. Are you out there? Praise the Lord. You are a priest, not for a while, forever. But not like, Mo, not like Aaron and his sons. He says, after the order of Melchizedek. Well, this is a Bible study. Could we take a moment? Let's study that out for just a second. 
Even today, there are different orders of priests and monks and, and nuns and that type of thing. The Roman Catholics have the order of St. Francis, the order of St. Benedict, the order of St. Augustine, and etc. What does that mean? Well, these people belong to a community within the Roman Catholic Church, and they pattern themselves after the founder, like Augustine or St. Francis, Mother Teresa in Calcutta. And they, they follow a common set of standards and objectives and rules. They, they dress alike. They, they, they do things alike. You understand that? Well, Jesus is today a priest after the order of Melchizedek. If you know your Bible, you'll read in the book of Genesis that there was a war, a big battle in Abraham's day, four kings against five. And in the process, the people of Sodom, along with their king, and including Abraham's nephew Lot, were taken, sorry, were taken hostage. So Abraham took 318 trained men in his household, chased after them, and recovered all. By the way, think about this. He had 318 trained young men who were his servants in his household. He was prosperous. God blessed him. Some people, you know, they feel like you get a little nervous if they have even one person helping in their house. He had 318. He had his own private army. Glory. He had his own private army. And they were pretty good because they beat four or five kings in the process. Whew, glory to God. Amen. He wasn't some poor, pathetic little fellow chewing on a stick, sitting in the dirt, you know, under a pup tent. He was, he was, when, when Sarah, his wife, died, the, 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 the Canaanite said, you are a mighty prince of God among us. That's what they should be saying about you. It's real quiet in this Holy Ghost church. I said, that's what they should be saying about you. Amen. And as he returned home victorious, in fact, he went as far north from like the southern part of what is now Israel. He went as far north as like toward Damascus. That's a long way to go. So they were really going a long way. But when he returned home to where he was staying, Abraham was met by two men. One was named Bera. The other was named Melchizedek. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 14. Bera was the king of Sodom. And Melchizedek was the king of Salem. Melchizedek in Hebrew means king of righteousness. And he was the ruler of Salem. And Salem means peace. And the Bible says, and he was also a priest. He was a priest of God Most High, which in Hebrew is El Elyon, El Elyon. And when Abraham returned, he met him, Melchizedek, met him with bread and wine. 
and he blessed Abraham. Invoking the name of God Most High, El Elyon, the God Most High, not just some fake God, false God, you know, uh, things that men worship, the true and living God, the God Most High, bless you, Abraham. He has delivered your enemies into your hand. Whoo. And then Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the spoils of war. Everything that he had captured. He would captured all the things from Sodom and whatever else he captured. He brought all the loot with him. So that's a lot of stuff. I don't know. That's, that's everybody's possessions. Whatever those kings took away out of Sodom. Clothes, you know, whatever. Donkeys, I don't know, you know, cattle. I don't know, whatever they took. Gold, silver. He had it all. His army had captured it all. And he gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the spoils. And this is the first time the word tithe is used in the Bible. And there's a principle, a general principle, rule of thumb, that the first time something is mentioned in Scripture is significant. We call it the law of first use. That the first time something is mentioned, that's significant. You should pay attention to that because that will give you deeper insight into something. Hmm? Now, the Bible abounds with genealogies from the Old Testament, you know, tracing, you know, uh, of course, Adam and Noah and all of these people, New Testament as well, that we see the genealogy of Christ. But Hebrews 7, chap- chapter 7, verse 3 says, there is no genealogy for Melchizedek. In fact, it says, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. In other words, he's saying, who is this strange person that suddenly appears in the narrative of our father Abraham? Who is this person who we don't even know where he came from? You know, there's no no record of him when he was born, when he died. Who was his mother? Who was his father? She's telling us he's a type of Christ. He's a foreshadowing of Christ. Maybe, and I don't know this for sure, maybe it's not a type of Christ. Maybe it's Christ himself. Maybe it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. We know in Genesis chapter 18, the Bible says the Lord appeared to Abraham along with two angels. And we know that Jesus himself said to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And they said, you're not even 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what that meant. They knew exactly what that meant because they picked up stones to kill him. But he slipped out of their midst. Woo! So Jesus is the king of righteousness. His throne is forever and ever. And he rules with the scepter of righteousness. You know that uh, this uh, summer, I'm not sure if it's in the month of May or June, I can't remember, but Charles, King Charles, is going to have his coronation. So this is like, a, you know, for, for royal watchers like some of you, this is a, this is a big event, you know. Uh, for British subjects, this would be a major deal. This is the kind of thing that typically may only happen once in someone's lifetime. 
You know, and they don't just, you know, meet, you know, um, you know, at, at the, at the uh, Domino's Pizza and, you know, and just, you know, and just <laughs> say a little prayer and that's it. I mean, this is a, this is a big deal, right? And, and, and at that point, they, they, have, they have this, uh, the crown jewels, right? Things that, you know, Jeppy drools over, you know, just, and, you know, diamonds and mess, you know, just big things and not her only. I don't know, are diamonds a girl's best friend? I think the Holy Ghost is a girl's best friend. But then, you know, and, and they put these things on him in an elaborate ceremony. Jesus was given the scepter. It's not just gold or silver because they paved their streets with gold. That doesn't mean much in heaven, but with the scepter of righteousness. Whew, hallelujah. And he is the prince of peace. And his throne is in a city. It's not called Salem. It's not even called Jerusalem. It's called the new Jerusalem, the city of our God. And one day that city will be on the earth. And you're going to spend eternity living there. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The bread and the wine represent his body and his blood. He met him from, from the victory with the body and the blood of Christ because that's how victory is won for us. Hallelujah. And he is priest of El Elyon, the God Most High. I'll read one more verse and I have to let you go. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 8, I say one more verse. I think it might be a couple of more verses, but anyways. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 8, it says this. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. So he's contrasting in that verse. He's contrasting the priests under the Old Testament, the sons of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood, who were commanded in the law to receive tithes from the people. The Levites, there was no land uh, for the Levites. See, there's, there's the area that belongs to the tribe of Judah. There's the area that belongs to the tribe of Issachar and Gad and Reuben and that type of thing, Benjamin. But there's no land given to the Levites because the Lord is their inheritance. And the tithe, is, is how they are sustained, you see. But here he's talking about another priest. And Abraham, the father of the nation, gave him tithes. So some, some Christians are quick to say when we talk about tithing, and by the way, we've already taken up the offering, so you, you can relax. I'm not going to take up another one. But, but when we talk about tithing, some Christians are allergic to that word, you know, and they, and they have a, a violent reaction. And they're quick to say, hey, hey, that was under the law, and we're not under the law. That's true. But it is also true that we're under a new covenant. And in that new covenant, which is a better covenant, we have a better high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so since Jesus is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and since through faith in him we are sons of Abraham, shouldn't we tithe to him? This is where you say yes and amen real loud. Huh? In fact, I think we could paraphrase this verse, Hebrews 7, 8, 
I think we could, we, could, we could say this. I don't think it would be much of a stretch to say this. Here in the earth, mortal men receive our tithes. But at the same time, at the Father's right hand in heaven, he receives them. And it is witnessed that he lives forever and ever. So really, the, the, the ushers in our church or any church service, you know, you know, they pass the bucket and you give your offering. You know, you're not paying like a church dues, a membership fee, a bill, light bill, electric bill, water bill, rent. You're giving, you're giving a portion of the victory just like Abraham. We tithe like Abraham did. Melchizedek didn't even tell Abraham, now you got to give me 10%. That's my cut. Otherwise, I, I, I take back my blessing. Abraham willingly, no one told him to do it. He willingly gave a tenth of what he had. So if you want Abraham's blessing, you have to have Abraham's faith. And if you have Abraham's faith, you'll have Abraham's works. And he gave a tenth of all that he had. Whew, praise the Lord. Amen. Hmm. Then the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the people and you can keep all the, the, the items, all of the material possessions. Give me the people and you can keep all the stuff. Now to our ears, that may sound reasonable. Yeah, okay, that sounds pretty good. But that's not how it sounded when it was written. Because to the victor belong the spoils. That's just the, the law of this world. And Abraham has won a great victory in battle with his men. So everything now, in the eyes of, of the people, his contemporaries, it's all legally his now. It's his. It belongs to him. And Bera, the king of Sodom, is a loser. He's been conquered. He's been defeated. He's, he's been reduced to a hostage. He has no right to claim anything. So it's not reasonable, it's arrogant. Huh? But Abraham said this, and this is my last verse. Last verse for the year. <laughs> sort of. In Genesis 14, verses 22 and 23, Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. That also means creator of heaven and earth. That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So notice, Abram or Abraham now uses the name of God that Melchizedek revealed to him, El Elyon. When he says, I've lifted up my hand to El Elyon, he doesn't mean like, praise the Lord, you know, or, or here I am, Lord. What he means is, I've made a solemn oath. I've sworn. I have promised. I'm not going to take anything that's yours. So he got this big windfall prophet from a victory, and he gave a 10% of that to Melchizedek. Okay, but I still got the 90%, right? 
And he gave the rest back to the king of Sodom and said, I, don't, I won't even take a string. I don't even want a broken chapel from you people. I don't want anything that was yours because I don't want you taking the credit for my prosperity. God is my source. We could preach a, a dozen sermons right now because there's a lot of people who don't care where the money comes from. Come on, I said, there's a lot of people who don't care where the money comes from, right? You know, uh, stolen money, well, we'll just sanctify it. You cannot sanctify stolen money. In a civilized society, you could go to jail for that. <laughs> Are you out there today? I said, some people don't care where the money comes from. If you build your church with corrupted money, your church is corrupt. I said, if you build your church with stolen money, you're a thief. I don't want stolen money. Hmm? I don't want corrupted money. If I know it's corrupted, I won't take it. Now, I don't necessarily call everybody on the phone and say, now, where'd you get that money? I, I don't necessarily do that, but I don't want, I don't want, we don't pursue black money, nor do we want it. I'm not going to build my church with the money that should be built to our, for our children's schools or should be built for our commuters' roads or our infrastructure, our bridges, our, our electricity. I don't want that money. I'd rather meet under a tree somewhere than, than have a, a church built with stolen money. See, some people in the body of Christ in Nagaland, they don't have the spirit of Abraham. They have the spirit of Berah. I won't take even a thread from you. I wonder if somebody came to you with a big chunk of money, but you know what they're asking you to do is not on the level. Would you somehow make a theological excuse? Well, this is, this is the answer to my prayer. The wealth of the sinner is laid up for the righteous. Yeah, but, but, not, but not like this. <laughs> Hallelujah. Some people don't care where the money comes. Do you know that the Pharisees had more character than some Christians I know. Because when Judas brought back the 30 pieces of silver, they said, we can't put this in the treasury. This is blood money. Think about it. They would not, you know, if, if obviously the Pharisees were not from Nagaland, because otherwise they would have said, praise the Lord. I don't That's the, oh, praise God. It came back. What a great, we got what we wanted and we got the money back. Got a refund. No, they said, they said, no, no, that's blood money. We're not going to use, I'm sorry not to be unkind, but they said, that's blood money. We're not going to use that. And so they decided, well, we'll buy a little field and strangers can be buried there. They had more character than some Christians I know. Abraham said, I've lifted up my hand. I've made a promise to God. I want prosperity, but only if it comes from you. Not only that, so that you get the credit. You see, you could say, well, you know, God gave me the victory, so... Praise the Lord. But he said, no. No, 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 no. I don't want anybody to be able to think that I somehow got the money some other way. I want my prosperity to come from God, and I want him to get the praise. And if he doesn't get the praise, no, thank you. I don't even want it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In the very next chapter, we don't have time to go there. It says, then God appeared to Abraham and said, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. What is he saying? I'll take care of you. I'll protect you. 
because you just got through defeating a bunch of kings. And by the way, they have your address. <laughs> they know where you live. They're coming for you. He said, don't worry. I'm your shield. You've given away the spoils. He said, I am your reward. I am your reward. Don't sell God's presence for rent money. Don't sell God's presence, you know, just so you can get, you know, the thing that you want. No, he's my reward. I believe in prosperity. I believe in the Abraham type of prosperity. He's the most high God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We have a great high priest who has ascended into the heavens, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we need to hold fast our confession. Amen. Would you stand with me to your feet?